prepare ourselves to receive from the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Last week we had Thanksgiving, Lord, and we want to remain in that mindset of thankfulness, Father, all year round. We want to be, we want to be grateful. We want to recognize those things in our lives that we're lucky to have, those things that you've given to us that we don't deserve. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can gather today. We thank you that in a time when there's danger and fear about a pandemic, Lord, that we are still able to gather as your people, whether we are able to gather in person or whether we're able to gather online. Thank you for that, Father. We pray that you would open our hearts, that we would encounter you today as we encounter your word. In your name, amen. So last week we began a series on the book of Daniel. It's called Exile Living, and we're talking about what it means to live in a culture that is not your own. Daniel is one of those interesting books that, you know, in some Christian traditions, it seems like Daniel only gets opened when it's time to pull out the charts, when it's time to talk about the end times, the coming of our Lord, which, you know, like, that's good, right? That's important. But Daniel isn't only a book about the end times. It's not only a book about getting Christians into arguments with one another. Daniel is a book about hope, about hope for God's people living in difficult times. And it's about hope for those who are living as an exile in an indifferent or even a hostile culture. There are always cultural currents pulling on us. My family likes to sail. My father has a sailboat. My grandfather taught my mother how to sail. My father and my mother did a lot of their dating, sailing. We took, my mother and my father and I took my two children sailing for the first time a couple of weeks ago. It was very fun. And sailing is one of those things where you get out on the water and the wind blows and the currents of the lake move around and if you're not paying attention, you can, you can shift your sails and you can adjust the rudder and you can, you can direct yourself on the water. But if you're not paying attention, you will find yourself all of a sudden several miles from where you really thought you were. If you're not watching the shore, if you're not watching those points that don't move, you can find yourself very suddenly, or not so suddenly, just a little bit over time, blown off course. Or maybe, maybe have you, has anyone been swimming in a river? Have you ever experienced that? You swim in a river and you think you're swimming straight across and then all of a sudden you're, you're quite a bit further downstream than you were when you started because the currents are pulling on you. If you're not paying attention, you can be blown away. And in fact, going with the current is easy because all it takes is to stop. You don't have to do anything to go along with the current. You don't have to do anything to be blown along by the wind. You just have to stop trying to control it and off you will go. It's very, very easy. The problem is that cultural currents are almost always pushing you to compromise and abandon your faith and commitment to God. This was certainly the experience of the early Jesus movement, the early Christian church which was just a tiny boat adrift on the great sea of the Roman Empire. They adjusted their sails, they worked the, the oars, they did everything that they could, and there was this massive thing pushing against them. I would say they did a great job, personally. But the culture and the currents are always trying to pull us off. Is following Jesus difficult? 
Is it difficult to follow Jesus? Nod, yes, right? If, if your answer isn't immediately yes, maybe just in your heart because you're shy, but if your answer to the question of is following Jesus difficult immediately yes, then it's quite possible that you're not actually following very faithfully. I remember being almost afraid to read the words of Jesus because I found him so difficult and so other-cultured. He was just so different from what's natural to me. We have many cultural truths today pushing and pulling at us, telling us this is what you should think, this is what you should believe, or perhaps this is what you should be afraid of, or my personal favorite, the truth that culture is forever pushing, this is the most important election of your lifetime. I don't know if you've noticed, it's a political season. Have you, have you noticed? Anyone? And I wonder, this is, this is one of those things that I think culture is pushing very hard all the time. You should be very worried about what goes on in government. To be clear, that is what the culture is saying. And I'm not saying, I'm not saying we shouldn't be worried about what goes on in government. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. I'm not saying we shouldn't keep elected leaders accountable. But I wonder if I can get your blood boiling with one picture or one face. How about, how do you feel about Brian Pallister or Justin Trudeau? Can I, can I get your blood boiling? How about some of our neighbors down south? Can I get your blood boiling? Can I get you going? Can, uh, do you feel the anxiety? Do you feel the cultural pressure? You should be worried. Or how about some of the, the global bad guys? Maybe some of the people that we're told we need to be afraid of that are from, you know, not here. Last week, we spoke about Daniel chapter 1. We spoke of Daniel and his three friends, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael, better known as Rack, Shack, and Benny from the VeggieTales cartoon. Oh, I'm sorry, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they were taken to this other culture, the Babylonian culture, a culture quite opposed to their God and their way of life. And what's really interesting is that none of the things that they adopted were portrayed as a betrayal. When Daniel and his friends came to Babylon, they adopted the way that the Babylonians dressed. This wasn't seen as a problem. They, they did take a stand against food, but most of us think that when we go to another culture, we need to cloister. And there are many examples of this, not only in Christian, Christian religious communities, but just like of general, regular communities. You often find people grouped up in people that are like them. We're living in North Kildon, and let me tell you, this is Mennoniteville. Which is fine, because my wife and I are both of that tribe, for lack of a better word, but it is, it's just interesting to see. The, Daniel and his friends, they didn't just adopt the way that they dressed, though. They adopted, they got new names given to them, and not just any names. They were given names that honored Babylonian gods. Daniel, was, Daniel whose name means God is my judge, was given the name Belteshazzar, which means Bel protect him. He's, it is directly being given a name honoring a foreign god. And they didn't complain about that. 
So they took a stand when it came to the food. They said, this is the line for us. We can't go any further. And they won. It worked out well for them. But what is going, that was just the first round, just the first round of an entire lifetime. And what is going to motivate an entire lifetime of faithfulness for Daniel and his friends? So now we're going to do something a little unusual. We're going to read the whole story of Daniel chapter 2. This is a little bit unusual. This is going to be a good chunk of scripture. So I hope you're comfy. Settle in. If you're watching online, make sure you've got a drink. But I think we could do a lot worse than to read a big chunk of Bible on a Sunday morning. Am I right? Yeah. So let's read. It's a great story. I love this story. Daniel chapter 2. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me and I want to know what it means. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it. Pretty normal story so far. This is pretty much how it goes with magicians and astrologers and dream interpreters. They go, you tell me the dream and I'll I'll tell it. But the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it for me. Whoa, somebody woke up on the wrong side of the bed. Once more they replied, let let the king tell his servants the dream and we will interpret it. Then the king answered, I am certain that you are trying to gain time because you realize that this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me the dream, there is only one penalty. You have conspired to tell me misleading and wicked things, hoping the situation will change. So then, tell me the dream, and I will know that you can interpret it for me. The astrologers answered the king, There's no one on earth who can do what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or astrologer. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they do not live among humans. This made the king so angry and furious that he ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death and the men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, great boy's name if you're looking for one, when Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven and said, Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You have given me wisdom and power, and you have made known to me what we asked of you. 
You have made known to us the dream of the king. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, and said to him, Do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. I'm sure Arioch was a little relieved. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah, you know, that, that people that you conquered and dragged off a whole bunch of them, who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, remember they changed his name, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no. No wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he is asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace, but the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Bear in mind, Daniel has not had the king confirm to him that this is what the dream was. And now we will interpret it to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. Good way to talk to the guy that wants to kill you. After you, another kingdom will arise, inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron. As iron breaks and smashes everything, and as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. I've lost my spot. Uh, partly, so as the toes were partly of iron and clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever." This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of the mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. 
Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed David in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. It's a good story, right? Such a good story. So we ask, what is going to inspire a lifetime of faithfulness? This dream is what will. My Bible says that King Nebuchadnezzar saw a statue. Did anyone have anything different in the Bible that they were reading? Were most of you reading off the screen? Many, many Bibles use the word image instead of statue. An image is an interesting word because it conjures up certain other echoes throughout Scripture. And the first place that comes to my mind when I hear the word image in the Bible is the first page of the Bible where it says that God created humankind in the image and likeness of God, where he created humans to rule and reign over the earth. Is this ringing any bells for you guys? That this is who humans are, this is what humans were made to be. But as humans organize themselves and they rule over the earth, eventually it comes that there need to be rulers of the rulers. And this is where the problem starts to become. You see, we, we have a saying, don't we? Power corrupts. And absolute power corrupts absolutely. My mom used to have a, have a magnet on the side of her fridge. It said, power corrupts, but absolute power is kind of cool. This has been Daniel's experience, though. Daniel is speaking to a man who wakes up grumpy and people die. This is the corruption that happens when humans try to govern themselves, when humans gather together, and more specifically than just try to govern themselves, when they make themselves and their government and their way of life into the place of God. When God says, you shall have no other images before me, he doesn't only mean statues or idols in the way that we think. Because when we make idols of our kingdoms and our national identities, when we compromise on our faith and we end up engaged in terrors and evils all in the name of human government while claiming to be acting in the name of God. How many horrors can you think of that were committed by people who were supposedly of faith just because they got tangled up in what the government was trying to do? I'm not being anti-government. I am, in fact, quite explicitly advocating the separation of the church and the state. That Our governments, valuable and important as they are, are not God. And this is Daniel's hope, that the kingdoms of this earth, that all of the things that this earth is telling us is important and crucial and right now, that those things are fleeting and that it's God's action that's eternal. This is a very dangerous idea. These words, quite explicitly, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, inspired the violent revolt of the Jewish people that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That was a big deal. A lot of people died. 
the temple was destroyed. Like, a lot of people died. It was really, really bad. I can't, I can't go into detail without getting really bad on it. But this, this passage right here, where it says that God's kingdom will come and smash all the others, this has inspired violent revolts more than once. That was kind of the big example, but that wasn't the only time. You see, there were five parts to the statue, and it tells us that the gold was Babylon, but afterwards there would be another kingdom, a kingdom of silver. This is the Medo-Persian Empire. And then there was a kingdom of bronze, which to my mind immediately goes Alexander. He's a man of bronze. They used bronze armor. They had bronze spear tips. And then there was a Rome, the Roman Empire that followed that, and the Roman Empire was divided. And during that time, there came a man. So it's one thing to know that kingdoms are temporary, but it's another entirely to hope for their annihilation because Jesus saw himself as the agent of God's kingdom, but he didn't do any of the things that people were expecting. He came into Jerusalem and then he healed lots of hurting and sick and blind people and condemned the religious leaders for their callousness. And on his very last night, his last night, in John 16, Jesus says to his disciples, have peace because I have overcome the world. Or some translations say, I have conquered the world. Did he? Because right after that, Jesus is arrested and he's crucified. He's led to a Roman cross and he's nailed up and he's left to die and he does. When did Jesus conquer the world? Well, according to the New Testament, Jesus did receive a crown. He was given a royal robe. He was given a scepter. He was lifted up and exalted onto a throne, which we call a cross. It just happened that the crown was made of thorns, that the scepter was a reed, and that the royal robe was given in mockery, according to Matthew 27. Jesus is even given a title, a placard, that tells the whole world who he is, that Jesus, he's the king. And he brought the smashing rock of God's kingdom through a paradox. He smashed the kingdoms of the world by letting himself be smashed. He exposed the ridiculous sham of what human government is all about and he created a new community, a new way of living that no government on the face of the earth could stop. As Paul put it in Colossians 2, verse 15, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing them, triumphing over them by the cross. Daniel 2 is a deeply Christian story about what God is doing in history about how we view and understand and interact with the world around us and how we can have hope that God is acting in ways that we can't understand through things we don't even see. Let's pray if the worship team wants to come back up. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we, like Daniel, are living in a culture that is at best indifferent and oftentimes openly culture or openly hostile to you and your word and who you want us to be, Lord. We pray that we would have faithfulness like Daniel and his friends to take a stand on the things that we need to, Lord, but also the wisdom to simply adopt the things that aren't an issue. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would give us your peace. We pray, Heavenly Father, that we would remember those things that are central, those things that are important, those things that are forever. We pray, Lord, that we would be different for having met you today. In your name we pray. Amen.